Go ahead and have a seat and make sure you grab your Bible. You need to open up to the book of Esther. We're in our, our series in the book of Esther. And uh, it's important that you follow along. So I always say get your eyes on a page. However best that works for you, whether it be a smartphone or a tablet or a good old-fashioned paper Bible, you know, those crazy paper Bible things. So we would encourage you to do that. And as, as you do that, um, Doug mentioned the poverty simulation. And uh, we have lots of people interested, but very few have actually taken the time to register. And so that's the key. We, it's not lack of interest. It's an actual step of registering, which I didn't even know you had to do. So uh, Megan would love it if you uh, would register and, and help her solidify that. Uh, also, we wanted to let you know that the facility is coming along well. Um, we're making great progress. Uh, what we are currently waiting on is approval for a grease trap. So uh, as soon as we get a grease interceptor all approved with the city, construction will begin. And uh, I feel very confident that that's going to happen very shortly. And our timeline for launching our grand opening in October uh, is, will be well underway and, and well achievable. So it's very exciting from that way. Doug also mentioned that this Saturday is the work day where we're taking down eight trees and a whole bunch of brush. And so we need your help. And so if you wouldn't mind... I just, we just need to know who can come. And so if you wouldn't mind, if you're planning on coming, text your name to, to that number right there, uh, right now. Just grab your phone and if you're, I'm coming. Um, if you're not coming, you can text uh, how great of a pastor you think I am. And you can feel free to put that in there as well. Uh, if you don't like me, just don't text anything. That'd be great. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, that would be awesome if you, you would do that and let us know that you are planning on coming to the workday. My children... Uh, had years ago a little toy. Uh, it was like a rain stick. So it was a round cylinder with thousands of tiny beads in it. And the cool thing about the rain stick was the noise it made. It, it, entertained, it entertained toddlers and babies and you would just tip it and all those little thousands of tiny beads would run over little plastic pieces in there and it would make a cool noise. And you'd turn it back and fourth, this little plastic cylinder. And this was a, a great occupier for our kids when they were very little. Until one day, one of my kids discovered how to take the top off the toy. And, uh, and the top came off. And sure enough, all those thousands of little beads f falling out all over the hardwood floor. And you can imagine them bouncing, bouncing to every known corner of our house, I felt like. And, uh, and we were, I mean, we cleaned it up. We were finding those beads, <laughs> I think for years to come, hiding in different places around the house. Um, I was thinking about that in terms of, imagine what it would take once the top came off that little cylinder to get every one of those little plastic beads back into the cylinder. It, w it feels overwhelmingly impossible to put them all back. I mean, talk about the proverbial can of worms. To get them all back in place, to restore it to its original place. You sort of just want to give up, you throw it away, and you start over. And I think sometimes when we think about the world in which we live, it feels a little bit like that broken cylinder. The top has come off and the world sometimes feels like such a broken place that it could never be put back together like the way God wants it to. And yet today, as I often tell you, what I want you to know from the book of Esther is that God is using his people, you and me, to restore this world, to restore the kingdom of God. 
Kingdom restoration is part of his plan for his people. And we're going to see that as we look and spend our fourth week in the book of Esther. Now I remind you and reminded you for all these weeks that the book of Esther has a theme that transcends the entire book. And that theme is simply this. God is the unspoken hero. We, you remember that for probably political reasons at the time, with the Jewish people living in a country that was not their own, the author of Esther chooses not to reveal God's name anywhere in the book. And yet God's fingerprints are all over the book of Esther because God is the unspoken hero of Esther, creating opportunities in the midst of opposition. So we have spent our time doing, looking at four of the key lives in the book of Esther. The first one that Ben uh, Segabart did four weeks ago was King Xerxes. And he looked at the life of King Xerxes and we saw a guy that seemed to have all the power. But in reality, we see that God is the one with the power. In week two, we looked at, a, at Haman, a guy who tried to create his own power and his own glory instead of trusting God. Last week, we looked at Mordecai. Here was a guy who repented of his own sin and, and brought repentance to an entire people. And now today, we see Esther, the hero who God used to save an entire nation. Through Esther, we're going to learn that God is using his people to restore the kingdom of God. Now, the challenge of the book of Esther is kind of interesting. We have chosen to go about looking at the book of Esther in terms of key characters in the book. And while it's helpful because we get a unique look at what God is doing in each person in which we focused, it's not neat. It's not neat. We can't just, we don't just start at the beginning of the book of Esther and over four weeks work our way chronologically through the book. When we take a look at different lives, it involves looking at different pieces all over. And when we think of the book, the woman Esther in the book of Esther, we, what we have to do is look at different snippets of her story that's woven throughout this book to get an understanding of what her life is like throughout the whole book and to learn what we can from her life. So I think as a narrative work, this biblical historical event has moments in it. We see this. And if we think about the book of Esther almost like a play or a symphony, we see these movements. And in fact, when you're reading, hopefully you took the challenge to read the entire book of Esther in one sitting. It's not too late. If you haven't done it, you can still do it. And as you work through the book of Esther, you see this all over. We can almost imagine a movie out of this with set changes and, and costume changes. And every new chapter seems to open up a new scene in the book. And so I think this is not due to the fictional nature of the work, but rather to the master storyteller of storytelling ability of the author who writes this biblical historical event. So what we want to do today is we want to walk through the scenes in Esther's life that highlight what is going on in Esther's life. And by focusing on these scenes which are, are in which Esther plays a part, we're going to see that God is using his people to restore the kingdom of God. Now, oftentimes I talk a little bit about the kingdom of God. And I need you to understand before we, we, we dive into this, that the kingdom of God is a concept with many Christians have not gotten their arms around or gotten their head around. 
So the concept of the kingdom of God is foreign. So many Christians think that the Christian life is simply about the cross. The Christian life is simply about accepting the free forgiveness that God offers through the shed blood of Jesus. And while that is important, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, his blood shed in our place for our sins, this is the essence of the gospel. But if we only stop at the cross, we miss a huge piece of the story of God. Because the true victory is the resurrection. And when Jesus rose from the dead, when his dead body was in the grave, and when it came back to life, when Jesus conquered death, he began the work of the kingdom of God, defeating the kingdom of Satan. And so the wrong question we should ask really is, or it's only a partial question when we ask the question, how do I get to heaven? That seems to be the question that we're all asking. How do I get to heaven? But the New Testament is very clear that that's only a small piece of the question. The big question is what is my calling in the kingdom of God? How am I part of restoring God's kingdom? And the, when we understand and grasp that because of the resurrection, we're part of a kingdom work, it lights, lights, a, lights, a, lights a, a fire in our soul. I, I think so many Christians miss this point. When we simply are just asking a question, have I done all the right things so that when I die, I can go to heaven? We have missed the fire in our soul piece. This is what the kingdom of God, the work of the kingdom of God does for us. It gives us purpose and meaning. It gives everything you do in this world significance. And it should light a fire in us. And what we're going to see today from the life of the woman, the hero, Esther, of this story. What we're going to see from her is that she gets it. She learns that this kingdom work, and it lights a fire in her soul. And she becomes part of God's work of restoring his kingdom. So if we're going to be part of God's kingdom restoration, we learn a few things from Esther's life. And I want to talk about these today. And the first thing that we're going to learn from Esther's life is that we need to embrace our place. To be part of God's kingdom restoration, embrace your place. Like I said, we were going to look at these in, in terms of scenes in the story of Esther. And so the first scene is when Esther becomes queen of Persia. Now you'll remember, like I've talked about for four weeks, that Esther happens in a time where the Jews had been exiled. They'd been taken into captivity into Babylon. Babylon had been conquered by the kingdom of Persia. And so the Jews find themselves in exile in Persia. Esther in this scene, this is where she becomes queen. A little background on Esther that we're going to learn a few things about her. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Um, Mordecai, who we already looked at, had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai, her uncle, had or her cousin, had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. So a couple things about Esther we learned. First of all, her name is really Hadassah. But like many Jews in exile, they had taken their Persian name, which is her Persian name, is Esther. And Esther is named after the star, it means star, and she's named after the pagan goddess of love. And so all ready we see that Esther is fully acclimated in the culture in which she lives. She goes by her Persian name, not her Jewish name. 
The second thing we learn about Esther is she had some massive personal tragedy in her life. At a young age, her father and her mother both died. And the nearest relative that could care for her was her cousin, her older cousin Mordecai. And so Mordecai raised her. We know Esther was a hottie. We learned this quickly in the thing that Esther was gorgeous. Like the the Bible is clear. She was lovely in form and feature. Uh, So Esther was gorgeous. And the last thing we learned about her is she was taken to the king's palace. When King Xerxes wanted to do this American idol, this Persian idol for, to find a new queen and he set up this contest, uh, he didn't send his people out to traverse the country and ask for volunteers. What the people did, his servants, they went through the streets of Persia and they looked for gorgeous women. People they thought were gorgeous, they grabbed them and they forcibly detained them. And Esther finds herself on the streets, forcibly detained and thrown into the king's palace into his harem of women that were there to service the king. Now you have to understand this is a cruel fate because Esther was taken in with hundreds of women, hundreds of young women, and they paraded these girls into the, cha- the king's bedchamber one at a time. And whatever girl performed the best for the king, pleased him most in bed, was the one that was going to become queen. So first of all, this was a cruel fate because of hundreds of girls, the likelihood that Esther would be chosen as the one from hundreds was very, very low. Most likely her fate would be that she would be stuck in the king's harem for the rest of her life. Not able to leave the palace, not able to marry, not able to have a family of her own, stuck in the king's harem for the rest of her life. It was a cruel fate for her. She did not want to be there. This was not the life that Esther had chosen for herself. She didn't want to be paraded into the king's bedchamber. She didn't want to be here waiting for a pagan king. Now, in the end, we, we know the story that Esther does please the king and she does become queen. But nobody knows in this entire palace that she is a Jew. You see, Esther didn't ask to be put in this place. She didn't want to be placed here. And yet here she is. And she embraced her position because she was in the perfect place to be used by God. You see, unlikely circumstances, undesirable circumstances often put us in a place that we don't want to be. And yet we find ourselves in the perfect place to advance the kingdom of God. If you think of what your life was like 10 years ago, just just think back, just page back 10 years ago to where you were, maybe 15 years ago. If I were to take a poll here, you probably 10 or 15 years ago wouldn't have imagined yourself at this place in life right now. Your life, pro- I mean, maybe there's some people go, no, I pretty much got it right. But most people go, this was not where I expected to end up. And some people are pleased and some people are unhappy. But even in your place in life right now, you may not like the place in life that you find yourself. And yet what you need to know is that God has put you in the perfect place to advance the kingdom of God. He's put you there for a reason. You're right where God wants you, even if you don't want to be there. Embrace your place in life and ask yourself how, where I am, can I be part of restoring the kingdom of God?
The second principle then we learn, the first one is embrace your place. The second principle then is to embrace your identity. And we move to the second scene in Esther's story. And now we're in the queen's palace. She's queen. She has her own palace. Things seem to have gone well, but five years have passed since this whole Persian idol experiment happened. And Haman, we learn, has just unleashed a plot to slaughter the entire Jewish race. The vile Haman has come up with a plan. And, and the king, what's more, has signed off on Haman's plan. And so Mordecai challenges Esther to go to the king. And Esther is so reluctant. She does not want to go because she can be killed. If she approaches the, queen, the king without being asked, she could be instantly killed. And she's hesitant. And so we see here in chapter 4, that we looked at a little bit last week, we see Mordecai's famous words to Esther. And if you've heard any verse from the book of Esther, you've probably heard this one. Mordecai says to her, Do not think... That because you're in the king's house, Esther, you alone of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Those words are so famous from the book of Esther. And Mordecai challenges her. And of course, Esther then realizes her call. She realizes that in the position she's in, she's in a unique position and she assumes the risk. And in verse 16, she, she says to Mordecai, fine, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. So Esther ha recognizes at this point that she has to make a decision. And it's really a decision of identity. Do you remember that Esther has kept her identity completely a secret at this point? The king has no idea that Esther isn't just another Persian. He has no idea that she's secretly a Jew. And he's kept her, she's kept her identity completely secret. Now she has to make a decision. Will she identify with God's people or with the people of her cushy new position? Which one? Which one shall, will she relate to? Will she go back to her cushy palace and just weather the storm? Will she hide and, and try to pretend to be Persian royalty only? Or will she embrace her identity as a Jew, as the people of God, which means she steps into risk? What's her identity? Will she identify as simply a Persian queen or will she come out and identify with the people of God? That's really a, a question that we can all ask if we want to do kingdom restoration. Will we identify with the people of God? Now, this is not an obvious choice for Esther. And it's not so obvious for us. I mean, I would ask you the question, where is your primary identity? How do you identify yourself? Because you and I are in a simple, similar position to Esther. Now, we're not saving all the Christian people in the world from genocide, but we do find ourselves embracing the mission of God and the people of God. First um, Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, You are a chosen people, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Peter tells you that if you believe in Christ Jesus, your primary identity is as his child. Who do you relate most to? What's your primary identity? Might it be a sports team? Football season's coming, right? You know, are, are you primarily a, a Cyclone or a Hawkeye or a Bears fan? You know, baseball, like... I, I gotta be honest, sometimes I am primarily a Cubs fan. In fact, uh, one time I was really excited about the Cubs victory and I was telling my wife how we did such a great job doing this in the game and, and our pitching was fantastic and our hitting was great. And, you know, and she looks at me and goes, you know, Dave, you're, you're not actually on the team. You know, <laughs> like, what do you mean I'm not on the team? Of course I am. Uh, sometimes we have to do an identity check. Where's our primary identity? Is it in a sports team or a, a school club? Do you primarily identify with an organization, with your occupation, with your gender, with your race? Do you identify as a mom or as a dad? Do you identify primarily with a political party? Where is your primary identity? Because it should be in Christ. As a believer, you are in Christ. And until you embrace this identity, your identity will be with something else. Until you identify this, you can never be fully engaged with the kingdom of God and the restoration process that he is doing. What is your identity? For Esther, she had to make a clear choice. Was she going to identify with the Persians or was she going to identify with the people of God? The, so the second thing we see is embrace our identity. The third thing now that we're going to see in terms of involving ourselves in the kingdom restoration of God is that we need to embrace our intercessor. Embrace your intercessor. So we've moved now to the third scene of Esther. We've gone from the streets of Susa to the palace of the queen. And now we walk into the king's inner court and the queen's banquet hall. And we see Esther pleading with the king. So Esther puts on all her royal clothes. She gets all dressed up and made beautiful. And she knows, I'm going to go into the king's inner court where I'm not allowed to go unless I am summoned. But I haven't been summoned, so I'm going to go in. I'm going to take this risk. And Esther does this. She goes to the king and she makes her plea. But her plea is not what we would imagine. We would imagine she would just walk in and go, King, did you know you just ordered an edict to have all my people killed? Uh, could you not do that? No, she goes in and her plea is simply this. Come to dinner. Come to, the king asks, well, what, what's, what's your position? What's your petition to me? And she says, well, well, just come to dinner. Bring Haman and come to dinner. So he does. He comes to dinner and he says again, what's your petition? Tell me. I want to know. Why are you doing this? What do you want? And she says to him again, well, you know what? On second thought, let's do, let's do another dinner tomorrow night. We'll have a second dinner. And you and Haman come and then tomorrow I'll tell you. What's up with this? I mean, why doesn't Esther just spit it out? Like, why is she being so weird about this? You have to understand Esther's unique position. Remember, Haman came with the plan of genocide for the Jews. But the king signed off on it. 
So what she has to do is figure out a way to tell the king, hey, Haman is the vile villain. You're really okay, even though you signed off on this. She has to way, find a way to place all the blame on Haman without placing blame on the king. She has to be so careful. So she sets things up just right. And then she finally intercedes for her people. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. At this second banquet, she's got Haman and the king right here in her, on her ground, uh, having this banquet for them. And Esther and the king petitions her again. What is it? What do you want? Verse 3, the queen answered, If I found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we'd be, uh, merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Then Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. When she sets things up just right to intercede for her people, she gets herself in the right place. You see, God has picked Esther, a very unlikely person, to be the intercessor for his people. God picks the unlikely. I mean, if you think about this, Esther is an unlikely person. She was an unrecognized young woman in a Persian king that was taken captive. She was unlikely, unrecognized, and unknown. And she is the one to intercede for God's people. I love how God does this. God takes the most unlikely of people to do his kingdom work. And in many ways, this is just like Jesus. If you think about what Jesus did, he was a very unlikely person. He was a Nazarene. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? He was unrecognized. He was born in obscurity in a barn. He was unknown, a rabbi raised away from Jerusalem. And he would be the one to intercede for you and me. Without Christ, you see, you and I are completely broken. We are muddled in our own sin. There is no way that we can please God. But the gospel declares that in spite of our sin, Jesus interceded for us on our behalf. He stands before the Father and says, I took their punishment. My blood paid for what they cannot. And I defeated death by being raised from the dead. You only engage the kingdom restoration of the gospel when you let Jesus intercede for you. And this is the gospel. Esther reminds us that we are powerless. We have to ask our king to save us. Just as Esther interceded on behalf of the Jews, so Jesus intercedes on behalf of you and me. Jesus goes before the Father. He walks into the throne room and is in our intercessor. And Esther couldn't have pleaded if she was never alerted of this genocide. You know, so oftentimes part of the problem for us is that we don't even really functionally realize that we need an intercessor. Um, to talk about people being sinful and broken is really uncool. I mean, all the time you'll hear it. In, in so many media sources, you'll hear that people just want to believe that humanity is just basically good. 
that given the opportunity, people will just do what is right. But you can't travel the globe and believe that. Not for real. Unless you and I understand our brokenness, that we are sinners caught up in the destruction that Satan would bring, unless we cry out to God and say, I need an intercessor, we can never be part of this kingdom reversal. We can never be part of this kingdom work, this restoration of God. Esther couldn't have pleaded if she was never aware. You and I have to be aware of the depths and acknowledge and own our own depravity. And then we come and Jesus says, I gladly intercede for you. Jesus is always making intercession for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Did I put that on there? I didn't. Hebrews chapter 7, 25 says this, talks about Jesus. and talks about his making intercession for us. 7.25 says this, Therefore, he is able to save completely, save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is always interceding for you and for me. And this is fantastic. The gospel never gets old. Uh, sometimes we talk about how um, we get tired of hearing the same message that Jesus came and he died and, and, and for our sins and he rose from the dead and God sent his spirit to live amongst his people. And, and sometimes we just get a little weary of it. But the gospel never gets old because Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. And we have to embrace that. If we want to be part and have a deeper purpose and meaning in life, we have to embrace it. The fourth thing we need to know and we learned from Esther about being part of God's kingdom restoration is to embrace the reverse kingdom. Embrace the reverse kingdom. So we move on to scenes four and really and five. Uh, and this is in, in the queen's banquet hall. And Esther now has just revealed the vile Haman. And now we're going to see the king's response. All these great stories in the Bible are filled with irony and reversal. I love it. Look at verse 6. Esther said, the vile adversary and enemy is Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king got up in a rage and he left the wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman realized that the king had already decided his fate. He stayed behind to beg the queen Esther for his life. All this plotting and scheming that uh, Haman had done to get the Jews and Mordecai in a place where he could slaughter them all, everything is now reversed. It's really interesting. As the king discovers that Haman tricked him and tricked him into killing his, his queen's people, the king is ticked and so he goes out. Now you need to understand what this leaves is Haman alone with Esther in Esther's palace. It was strictly, strictly forbidden for any man who was not a eunuch to be in the queen's chamber without the king present. It was strictly forbidden. And yet here we find Haman in this position. And so he's groveling before the queen. He's groveling. And here we see with, with all this irony that of course the king comes back in and he says to to Haman, 
Will he even, I mean, Haman's just kind of falling on his knees at the queen alone. He says, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face and took him away. And Haman is taken and he's hanged on the own, uh, the, his own gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Haman's wealth and, and wealth and property are taken away from him and given to Esther. And since this edict of genocide can't be overturned, the king does something better. He gives the Jews then the right to defend themselves. In chapter 8, we see this in verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force or any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder their property of their enemies. And so everything gets reversed. Think about the, all the great reversals that happen in the story of Esther. First of all, Esther has to plead with the king for her life and the life of her people from Haman. Now the roles are flipped. Haman is now the one pleading with Esther for his life. Mordecai earlier, a Jew, refused to bow to Haman. And now Haman is bowing to a Jew. Whereas the Jews were once in danger now by Haman, now Haman's life is in danger. Haman is hanged where a Jew was supposed to hang. Haman planned for the wealth of the Jews to be plundered from them and put in the king's treasury. And now Haman's wealth is taken and given to the Jews. Haman had planned for the armies to annihilate the Jews. And now the Jews can organize and annihilate the armies of Haman. Everything in this story is this great reversal. And it reminds us so much that the kingdom of God is a kingdom that works upside down and in reverse to everything we would expect. Think about this. Back in the beginning of the story of God in interacting with humanity, we see Adam and Eve declare rebellion on God. They sin. They eat the fruit. Eve was deceived. Adam did it willingly and knowingly. And he walked into this rebellion. And at that moment, the kingdom of Satan set up shop here on this earth. But God was never done. Satan celebrated the sin of Adam, but it would be a descendant of Adam, Jesus, who would be Satan's undoing. Satan intended the cross to be the great defeat of God. But the cross resulted in the resurrection, the great defeat of Satan. You and I should have paid for our own sins against God. But the great reversal happens when God himself pays for our sins. Everything Satan was undoing in the world, God is now restoring. And it all started with resurrection. We get hints of this all over the Bible, that God is the God who is reversing the evil of the world. Look at Genesis chapter 50, 20. Joseph tells his brothers what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You see the reversal of Romans 8, 28. You've heard this one. In, in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. The great reversal. Everything Haman planned for evil, God used against Haman. In the same thing, same way, everything Satan planned for evil, God uses against the forces of evil. To be part of God's kingdom work, we have to know and understand that this is the way the kingdom of God works. It is a great reversal. 
The fifth thing I want you to know then today about being part of God's kingdom work, the fifth and last thing is that we need to be part of God's kingdom restoration by embracing our kingdom goal, our kingdom role. And our kingdom role is vanquishers. That is what we are. So the, the last scene here that Esther's a part of in this story is now a scene of really all over Persia. The Jews are defending themselves. They're taking down the enemies in Susa. And on the very day the Jews were supposed to be destroyed, rather they are vanquished. And now look what happens next. Chapter 9, the last scene for Esther that we see here. Chapter 9, verse 11. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa, when the Jews defended themselves against their enemies, was reported to the king the same day. The king said to Queen Esther, verse 12, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the city of the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's province? Now, what is your petition, Esther? Do you notice he keeps asking her this? What is your petition? What is your petition? It will be given to you. What's your request? It will be granted. So we see here, the king might be baiting her a little bit. 500 of the Jews' enemies have been killed in their attempt to assassinate the Jews as the Jews organized and defended themselves. You have to understand, there was no right to bear arms in the Persian Empire. There was no right to assemble. The Jews then were granted that by the king. They, they got together and they defended themselves and killed 500 men. Now, so the king is asking Esther, what's next? I mean, in, the, in this city, we've got 500 of them dead. What's next? Now, we would kind of expect Esther to show some mercy here and go, well, you know, we've made our point. It's good. Let's show mercy on the rest of the enemies. But Esther doesn't do that. Look at her response. She says, okay, king, let's do it another day. Let's hang the bodies of Haman's 10 sons on the gallows. And you have to understand there's quite a bit of evidence in Esther that says these gallows were not typically what we think of uh, someone being hung from. They probably didn't involve a rope and someone hanging. A 75-foot gallow was most likely a 75-foot stake in the air where a body was impaled for all to see, to send a message, don't mess with the Persian empire. And so these dead bodies, Esther says, let's take the 10 dead sons of Haman and put them up on these sticks, 75 feet in the air so everyone can see the result. And then let's do it another day. All over the kingdom of Persia, let's let the Jews slaughter their enemies. And we see the result of that was 75,000 deaths. Now, let's not let Esther off the hook here. Because sometimes we think, well, Esther's the hero. She must we must be misunderstanding something here. One thing I love about Bible heroes is that they aren't really heroes at all. Every time we read a story of someone in the Bible, they mess it all up. You see it with Gideon. You see it all over. Heroes of the Bible, we see this thing where they just sort of go beyond their bounds. They fail to show mercy. Esther is no different here. We can re relate for her desire for vengeance, but vengeance is the Lord's. God is the one who gets vengeance, and he is the one who ultimately vanquishes evil. We get to be part of that. We are vanquishers because of God and that he is the vanquisher.
We are not vengeful. We're vanquishers. I don't know. It sounds like a great WWE name for a, for a wrestler. There's probably one out there called the vanquisher. But that's what we are because God is the ultimate vanquisher. Our work is not to destroy people, but to destroy the evil work of Satan. And we embrace his vanquishing work when through kingdom work, we're part of something bigger. I mean, this is why we're talking about a poverty simulation, right? Not just to make you feel guilty because you're not in poverty. We understand, we want to understand what it's like so we can act. When the world spotlight falls on the, the Rio games, um, the spotlight also falls in the shadows. Uh, it, I was reading an article recently about um, the number of young girls who are sold into prostitution by their families for money. Uh, that goes completely ignored unless the spotlight's on the stage. And there are Christians who are saying, no more. We're going to vanquish evil. When children are adopted by beautiful Christian families, the kingdom is restored. When a man who is dis being destroyed by materialism and greed, when another man comes alongside him and says, there's a better way to live, the kingdom of Satan is being destroyed and the kingdom of God is being restored. When, when someone serves in our nursery on the other side of this wall and they're holding a baby so a mom and a dad can sit here and listen to the word of God, the kingdom of God is being righted and restored. It's in the little things. It's in the big things. When we head out into the community and paint someone's deck, it's kingdom work. When you listen to your coworker who's going through a divorce and you let her cry on your shoulder, it's kingdom work. And as Christians, this has started right now. And it's ultimately expressed when Jesus comes back. Make the wrongs right. God, deliver us from the evil one. You see, God is using his people to restore the kingdom of God. He used Esther, the most unlikely of people, to save his kingdom, to save his people, to be part of God's kingdom restoration process. So what I want to ask you today as we close is a simple question. Have you ever thought of yourself as a kingdom restorer? As someone who is seeking out ways to restore the kingdom of God? Do you have your eyes open around you? So I'm going to show you a video here and uh, it, from the show American Pickers. Now, if you've ever seen American Pickers, American Pickers are these guys and they're located, I think, up in northeast Iowa. And they go around and they search junk right? They just drive into these, these properties that are just, have buildings and, and stuff worth of junk. And they're looking for junk that they can, they can either sell to be restored or that they, can, they themselves can restore. And uh, in this particular uh, 90 second clip that I want you to see, these guys had heard a rumor that there might be an Indian motorcycle buried in the backyard of this property. The story had been passed down from a couple generations that their grandfather had. An Indian motorcycle was a motorcycle that was built from somewhere between 1903 and 1950. It's a very rare type of motorcycle and they haven't been made for a long time. And so they hear this story. And so they go and you're going to see what they do in the, to the backyard. And what I want you to see is the look on their face. So show this clip. Show this clip. 
You guys, I just love that. I mean, just the simple excitement that they have for restoring a motorcycle, for bringing it back. And yet we have something so much more valuable, the kingdom of God. Today, uh, we want to pray and close and just invite God to do that work in our hearts, to let us be part of the restoration of his kingdom. Heavenly Father, we come to you today joyfully celebrating what you have done through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus. And just like you called Esther thousands of years ago to save her people, God, you have called us to restore your kingdom, to be part of your work of what you are doing, God. And we look around us with joy and bright eyes to see for the opportunities that you have placed right in front of us to be ambassadors and restorers of your kingdom. We pray that as we close in worship, God, that we would celebrate you, the good God, for who you are and what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.